Well, uh, good to be back, and uh, as you, some of you have, may have uh, either predicted or maybe Brian already kind of you know, got rid of all the suspense and kind of uh, spoiled it for you, uh, we're going to be in the book of James, uh, obviously, and so if you could turn to the book of James uh, to chapter 4, James chapter 4. Been going through the book of James with the college and career students for uh, a little over a year now, and so we're here now in chapter four. And uh, such a great passage we'll be looking at this morning, uh, and that is James four verses thirteen through seventeen, uh, which I've called "Planning in the Will of God." Planning in the Will of God. Just in our own prayer requests, we've already seen a little bit of that of. The fact that we do have plans, we do have goals, we have aspirations, we have many things that we are rightfully and joyfully trying to uh, plan and, and get things uh, to, to align up with, with what we think is right. But a lot of times what comes with that is the aspect of knowing that God's will may not align with our desires so many times. And this is, can be a frustration, this can be overwhelming. Uh, but uh, the encouraging thing is, is that we know that God's will is perfect. We know that God's will is what's best for us. And so usually the problem is not trying to figure out how God's will could align with what we think is best, but instead uh, simply aligning our minds and aligning our hearts with the will of God uh, by trusting him. And uh, kind of what we even alluded to with the scripture reading today about waiting in silence because we trust that he knows what's best. This is a perfect lesson, I feel like, for even college students, because I, as I told the students uh, several weeks ago when we walked through this, um, there is this expectation for young college people uh, in their early 20s or late teens to, like, have their whole life figured out. Like, you know, it's almost like that's, that's par for the course for conversations. Like, hi, how are you? Yeah, so what's your 10-year plan? And, <laughs> and it's just kind of this overwhelming sense of, like, wait, what? Like, I, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do tomorrow. Uh, but if you want to know my interior plan, you, you can get back to me later. I, I even tell uh, sophomores and juniors in the youth group, I'm like, just so you know, you better go ahead and come up with an answer to what you're, what are you, where, you know, where are you going to college? Because that is the go-to question. I mean, any, any adult that's going up to a upper high school and they're just having small talk, that is the kind of go-to. It's like, hey, so you, know, you got any plans for school? Any plans for, for work? And and, you know, I tell them, like, look, even if you're like, I have no idea, come up with something. Like, say, yeah, yeah I'm going to trust in the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> you almost have to, uh, again, just come up with something, again, that just, because uh, there's this expectation that we should know. And uh, I even remember being in seventh grade, and the school I went to is a public school down in New Orleans. And they, they taught us very early on, like, hey, you got to start figuring out what you want to do. And as a seventh grader, uh, yeah, I think job number one was uh, astronaut. That didn't pan out. Um, job number two was an architect, and uh, that one actually stuck a little bit. But uh, again, I had no, I had no, um, uh, no one coming alongside explaining what, what you're supposed to do with those goals and aspirations. I think my training for uh, architecture was playing The Sims nonstop. Uh, where I would just build houses, and then I wouldn't even play the game. I would just, you know, hey, hand it off to my brother. Like, hey, you want to play? I built a house for you. Um, turns out that you can't just play a video game and be ready for uh, life in a particular uh, job or career. But uh, I was just telling the, just the young people that a lot of times it is overwhelming 
to, to feel like you have to have your whole life figured out. And uh, even more so when you have to leave. When you're leaving your, your home, when you're leaving where you're normally at, like if you go, let's say you go to UGA or you go out of state, um, there is this overwhelming expectation to have everything figured out. And, and I, my, my intro that I told the, the college students was just the comfort of just thinking about the context. And this would be helpful for us to even understand the context since we're kind of dropping down into chapter four. But if you remember James, who's the uh, lead pastor, the overseer and elder of the church in Jerusalem, is writing to a group of Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem, but because of persecution, particularly the, the persecution and the stoning of Stephen, were scattered across Asia Minor. And so, uh, as you can imagine, the things that James is addressing throughout this letter is particularly addressing Christians that are just uh, in a state of, of just being lost and feeling confused and feeling overwhelmed and and it would make sense uh, that Christians that are having to start over in a brand new place and, and, and this whole Christianity, uh, Christianity thing in the church was so new and fresh to them as well with no leadership, no guidance as they were scattered across these areas, maybe a few families sticking with one another as they gathered in different cities, that the easiest thing to do is just to go back to what was normal, to go back to what was easy, to go back to just the normal things that they've all known, and that is your career, your trade, your job, just the normal flow of life, just like the rest of the world. And as you can see, all throughout this letter, if you're familiar with James, he keeps addressing various things that some people would say are very general or very practical or maybe just surface level wisdom. But, but these are the things that we always have to be reminded of over and over and over, whether it's guarding our tongue or thinking that a profession of faith is sufficient instead of the fruit and works that come along with that is proving our faith, whether it's looking at trials as being uh, an annoyance or, or being something that we grumble about. Uh, whether it's looking at temptations and wanting to blame them on God instead of taking ownership, and even just the simple truth of just listening to the word of God is not sufficient, but doing the word of God that James talks about in chapter 1 is so uh, helpful for us. And so what it comes down to is as you are living your life here in Georgia, here in Cherokee County, uh, here in just the midst of this world that seems to be falling apart and spinning on its head, the question is, are you trusting the Lord in the midst of your plans? When you were, if you were to write down your plans right now on a single sheet of paper, you know, uh, the, the question is not, is, is considering God somewhere on that list? The question is, can the paper represent your trusting in God? Everything you're writing is on the paper of trusting God. And that's the way we need to be thinking about our plans. God and his sovereignty and his will should be the backdrop to how we're thinking. And so here in James 4, through, uh, 4 13 through 17, we're going to look at four observations that reveal who you are trusting when you plan. We're going to look at four observations that reveal who you are trusting when you plan. And hopefully, as the text reveals, hopefully it's a capital W because you're trusting in God. Um, but uh, as we know, a lot of times what we end up doing is we trust ourselves. And usually we don't know it until our plans don't go the way we thought. And that's when it's revealed who we were actually trusting in the first place. So let's read 13 through 17 all together. 
And then we're going to look at these four observations so that we can examine our own hearts to see what is true about our own perception of our plans. Look with me at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows to do the right thing and does not do it, to him it is a sin. And our first observation we're going to look at is just understanding the concept of what I've called autonomous plans. Are your plans autonomous? I love the word autonomous. I don't like the meaning behind it in terms of affecting my own life because a lot of times, especially being in positions of authority where you're making decisions and you're having to plan, especially being the, a husband and a father, there is this, this uh, compelling thing to want to just take the reins, grab the steering wheel, and just kind of go. And how often is it that in the midst of those, we end up realizing that we are wanting to do things our way and our plans end up being autonomous, uh, which we're going to understand what that word is here shortly. But there you can see, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go in such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James likes using these kind of transition words. Here he says, come now, and really it's just to grab our attention. He just got done talking about how we should not slander if you slander. It's equivalent to you judging the law because you're placing yourself above the law. So do not lie or exaggerate or twist the truth for your own benefit. But I think even the the more broad context is even more helpful. And that's understanding what we see all the way back in uh, James 4.1. James 4.1, he pretty much walks us through how... The, 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 the source of all of our problems when we're fighting and, and in conflict, it's our own desires. We want things a certain way. And, and even sometimes we even ask for things that are, are on the surface good. If we were to uh, ex- reveal it to anybody, nobody would sit there and say, well, that's, a, that's just a bad thing that you want. But a lot of times, as James says, sometimes you, you don't ask, but sometimes when you ask, you're... You don't realize that you're wanting to spend it on your own pleasures. You're wanting things to benefit you. And so you can see just that, that arrogance and that, that thread of pride that's just woven all throughout chapter 4 to where we get here. Where it would imagine that if you don't get your way and you get angry and you have struggles and you have conflict, of course you would see that in your own planning, in your own goal setting. But look at the example that he says. This is a hypothetical example that he gives, but it does drive home his point that he's wanting to make. He's talking about someone that is, uh, that is planning to go today or tomorrow, and they're planning to go to a city somewhere, and they want to spend a year there. There's actually four verbs that we see there, to go to a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. And uh, again, on the surface, none of those things are bad. In fact, some of us might be in this room is like, I literally wrote that down in my notebook yesterday. <laughs> I was going to go to Atlanta, and I was going to exchange in goods. Um, I, I, I think you can do that now. You can exchange goods. It might be, you might have to get a permit for that. I'm not sure. Um, but what's really interesting about this is 
really what we cannot see. And this is why I'm so thankful just to be in Expositor Seminary because uh, just in looking at the languages and understanding the Greek, there is some significance to these four verbs that are here. Uh, I'm going to give you a small little lesson in Greek. Um, no quiz at the end, but next week there will be. Um, but there is an uh, importance here of the four verbs. And it's not which four verbs he's using. It's the fact that there are different types of verbs. There's imperative verbs. There's uh, indicative verbs. There's subjunctive verbs. And so what we would expect to see here if you were actually uncertain about the future because you're trusting the Lord, is you would see subjunctive verbs. Now, in the English, we don't have subjunctive verbs. We don't have a single word that represents subjunctive. The only thing we can do in the English language that represents a subjunctive verb is by adding the word may or might in front of it. So, for instance, I might go. I may spend a year there. I possibly will go and exchange in goods. And if the Lord wills, I'll make a profit. That's ultimately what should have been used if you're talking about future tense and plans is you would use subjunctive verbs. But all four of these verbs are indicative. Indicative saying, uh, it's, it's equivalent to saying, we will definitely go to this city. 100% we're going to spend a year there. It is a a guarantee that we're going to engage in business, and I will put money down that I'm going to make a profit. That's what the indicative is saying. It's this, this, this presumption that you're going to go do this, and there's no one to stop you. Because you've got it all figured out. You, you've done, by the way, this is not just some uh, haphazard uh, idea of someone just like writing it down. It's like, hey, you should have planned more. No, this is, this is a lot of planning. In fact, it, it, there's really no indication about how, pl- how much planning they did, but that's irrelevant. It's not about how much time and effort you went into your planning. This is not a lesson that's like, well, did you plan by throwing some things together and shaking a magic eight ball? Or did you actually put time and effort into it? That's irrelevant. Where is God in your plans? Is God even in your consideration? And if he is, then you understand that your plans may completely fall through, and that's okay because the Lord knows what's best. But the ultimate problem here is these people were confident when, where, how, everything that went with their plans. They were confident not only in the workings of their plans, but they were confident in the outcome of their plans. That's where the confidence was. And uh, a good place just to see this exact same heart attitude from James' half-brother Jesus is from Luke 12. Um, I I can read it out loud or you can flip there. Uh, Luke 12, 16, the familiar parable that he's uh, referencing here. And it's it's the same heart. The same heart we see of the person in James 4, 13 is the exact same heart that we would see in the parable of the rich, presumptuous man from Luke 12. Luke 12, 16. It says that Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do? Since I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain And all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 
See the presumption there? See the pride? But verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. It's the same heart. Same heart that would presume that what they think is best. And ultimately, the Lord doesn't see that their heart is rich, that their circumstances are rich, that there's any value in that person's soul. Why? Well, he had lots of things. In fact, he did a lot of play. It says he reasoned. He sat there and actually worked through. He, I mean, he might have been a very analytical person. He might have had his Hebrew Excel sheets all in a row. But, but the point was is that it was all sourced on himself. That was the problem. Not just uh, and a quick, quick point I wanted to make. This is uh, obviously not referenced here in the passage, but I wanted to at least give you the other side that this is uh, not just arrogant, reckless, extroverted businessmen. So again, there's some of us in this room that, you know, we're guilty of this. We're, we're, we're planners. We like things in a row. We have like seven different lists on our refrigerator that are all going on at the same time. But, but just so you know, the heart that's in this type of reckless businessman that wants to plan is the exact same heart that can be found in someone that is dominated by worry and anxiety. Dominated by worry and anxiety. If you were to go on in Luke 12, it goes on to say in verse 22, and Jesus said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your own body as uh, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Someone that worries all the time is in a constant state of anxiety about the future. And it's the same autonomous mindset. Autonomous is just a word that means independent, having the power to make your own decisions. The state or condition of self-governance or leading one's life according to reasons, values, desires that are authentically one's own. Even the, uh, the ancient uh, notions, that the ancient Greek that comes with the word autonomous, autos meaning self and namas meaning rule, it's self-rule. And if you really want to give a good biblical definition of autonomy, it's doing what's right in your own eyes. That's it. That's autonomy. Why are your plans perfect? Well, because I see it that way. That's why. That's autonomy. The anxious person is just as self-ruling and autonomous as the, the individual from James 4. Here's the difference. One of them has perceived control. They think they have control, but it's not. It's, it's really just a, a figment of their imagination. While the other person admits their lack of control, but both are living as practical atheists. It's the same. The only thing that would bring happiness to an uh, extroverted businessman that loves to be pr- presumptuous with his plans versus the super anxious person that's always worried and always fretting, the only thing that brings happiness to those people is if they can just know the future so they can plan accordingly. That's the only thing they want. It, it's so interesting because even if you gave them a prediction of the future that was bad, that would be okay because now they can plan accordingly because they want control. Both are living as practical atheists. And we're going to talk about this, but obviously this is not a passage against planning. Uh, Just two chapters later uh, in in Luke 14, 
uh, Jesus gives very clear uh, example of how there is a need to plan. This is not you know, a, a call to just throw out all of our plans. Luke 14, 28 says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he had enough to complete it? Lest, when he had laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to, began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? It's not against planning. It's against autonomous planning. It's, it's planning that says that I am the ultimate source of what's best for me and my family. That's what he's against. As one commentator says, James is against any kind of planning for the future that stems or is sourced from human arrogance, arrogance in our ability to determine the course of future events. That's it. Welcome to the party of false prophets. You're stepping into a situation where you are determining the future and, and declaring yourself unofficially as a prophet because you know what's going to happen as long as you plan things accordingly. Are our plans autonomous? Are they only right in your own eyes? Or have you considered whether the Lord is the backdrop in the paper that we're writing it down on? There's a second observation here, and it really comes from the fact that we have an inaccurate view and an inaccurate picture uh, of what we need to see. And so our second observation is what James says is an accurate picture. James here gives us an accurate picture of what our lives actually are. Because the problem is, we just have a wrong view of self. We have a, a wrong view of man in those moments that we plan presumptuously. Look what it says in verse 14. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. So what is the accurate, or what is the inaccurate picture that the presumptuous man of, of uh, verse 13 is saying? Well, it's, it's quite simple. This person looks at their life, they look at today, they look at tomorrow, and how do they see it? They see it as long-standing, progressive, and full of potential. The way they look at their life is they look at, it's like looking at a, a huge field, acres and acres and acres, and, and they can see little stems coming up in these perfect rows, and, and each one is peeking out just a little bit, and that's how they look at their life. They're like, man, look at this. Man, I can't wait for what's about to happen. And you know what, you know what it builds up? It builds up arrogance and pride in their own heart instead of what? Thankfulness to the Lord. When, when you see that your plans are going your way, is there, is there a giddiness that kind of builds up with inside of you because you're like, man, this is exactly how I planned it. This is exactly what I did. Man I, man, I cannot wait for this to go according to the way I planned it. And, and then, you know, somebody comes by and, you know, they, they give you a compliment or they hear about it and, and you're doing your best to hold it in. You're like, yes, thank you for the Lord. Yes. Humble. Thankful. Wait, say it again one more time. <laughs> But, I mean, that's, that's what happened. There's that battle. Is it not true that the times when things go according to our plan, that's where we're most susceptible for, for pride and falling in the pit? That's it. Scary thought when things go according to our plan. 
But James here wants to give them a better, more accurate picture of what their life is. Of course, he's uh, kind of evoking a familiar proverb, Proverb 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day might bring forth. His Jewish audience would have been very familiar with this proverb anyway. But let me give you the correct and accurate picture of what life is. James says that you are a vapor. You're a vapor. James loves using uh, imagery from nature because it is just good for us to get a great picture of, of what we're talking about here. But different people have, have kind of tried to figure out exactly what did he mean by vapor. And so some people have talked about like going outside. Maybe it was this morning because I'm pretty sure it was like freezing temperatures this morning. And, you know, you do that first like, oh, winter's here. And then it comes out. You're like, oh, seriously? <laughs> But, but it's uh, actually a better picture of what he's talking about here is, is like if you're boiling water and you see the, the steam coming out of it. Because, uh, again, if, if, if I don't even know this is possible. I, I don't do a lot of cooking. Short. So I, uh, I have attempted um, to cook on a stove. Um, <laughs> I, I know, I did. This, this, was, uh, this was one of those times where uh, Allison's like, I'll keep it simple, we'll stew pasta. And I was like, okay, pasta sounds easy, that's fine. And so she kind of gave me instructions on how to, and some of you are like, seriously, you needed instructions for pasta? Yes, I needed instructions for pasta. If it's not on a grill, I have, or, or I guess microwave, um, I, there's not a lot of hope. But uh, I, I did, so I followed her instructions, but for some reason... I don't know. It wasn't in the instructions, so I can only blame myself. But once, once the water got to a boil, and you're supposed to put the, you know, the little pasta sticks in there, uh, and you always break it in half. I don't know why, but I see everybody on TV, they break it in half and throw it in. Um, but uh, I, I turned off the stove at that exact moment, too. I was like, ah, sweet, boil, Keek, and turned it off, and then threw, <laughs> threw, the, threw the pasta noodles in there, and that was the crunchiest pasta I've ever had. It was very good. Um, yeah, I stick to the grill um, or Olive Garden. Um, but it's, it's, it's almost like if you were looking over, if you're looking over a, a pot that was boiling water and you try to like pinpoint, like it's almost like if you, if you had to pinpoint like particles of steam and it's like, all right, now track it. I want you to, you know, find some particles and track it. And, and your eyes, it's like the second you even like grab hold of like, I don't even know how you do that. But if, if you just grab a hold of like just a little section of steam and you try to fall, it's like, I, I lost it. I, I don't even know where it's at. I mean, that's, that's the idea here. It's like, really, you think your life is significant. You think that you're leaving this, uh, what is it the, the young folks say? They're leaving their legacy here. You think that, but I mean, it's like the second, according to the full redemptive history of this world, it's like the second someone even like even glance, it's like, ah, oh, I lost it. That's an accurate view of our life. And what's going to matter in the end is what you did with the gospel influence that the Lord gave you. But we're so consumed with ourselves. We're so consumed with ourselves. James says that it appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And that word vanish is actually the word to destroy. Uh, it's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 6 where he says, uh, where moth and rust destroy treasure. 
And so and destroy is, is a good word. I understand why James used the word vanish, but destroy is perfect understanding when you talk about moth and rust because it's not talking about that the moth makes the whole shirt disappear in a second or it makes the, you know, the rust doesn't make it disappear in a moment. It's the fact that it loses all value and significance instantly. You can still see it, but now that it's got holes in it, now that there's rust on it, it's lost all value and significance. That's what he's saying. Your life... The second you feel like you've become anything, the reality is is that you've just been reduced to zero value, no significance whatsoever, because that's who we are. We are dust. That is all we are. It's literally the opposite of the foolish rich man from Luke 12. He honestly thought that all of his stuff would last forever. So what am I going to do? I'm going to build a bigger barn. And, uh, and you know what? I might have to even build a bigger one later because, I mean, it's just like, I'm really good at what I do. Presumptuous. And in fact, really what this should remind us of is, uh, if, just flip back a couple pages. If, if, you're in, if you're in James, look at, look at James 1. James already kind of gave us a little bit of a preview of this. Yeah, look at verse, uh, verse 11. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. He already gave us the image of this person. In the midst of their pursuits. That means that they had so many plans. They knew exactly what was going to happen. And in, in mid-sprint, boom, faded away. Instantly humbled in the way that hopefully, you know, again, there's, there's always two ways you're going to be humbled here on this earth or after. And uh, I would much rather it be here on this earth that we're humbled. In the midst of his pursuits, he fades away, vanishes quickly like a puff of smoke, like a puff of steam, in the midst of his pride and arrogance. Do you have an accurate picture of man? Do you have an accurate picture of yourself? Or when you start thinking of your own significance, you get excited because you feel like you have something to offer that's outside of Christ. A third observation to help us reveal who's, who we're actually trusting is the observation of arrogant pride. Verse 15 says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. We'll be coming back to verse 15 shortly, but look at verse 16. But as it is, I'm essentially saying, look, you should look at yourself like a speck of you know, steam that disappears in a moment. But as it is, your reality is you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Now, this is a weird statement at first glance because any person that's planning presumptuously, they're, they're not really out there, you know, boasting and bragging about how arrogant they are. 
That's usually the thing that we're trying to hide. <laughs> we're trying to hide how arrogant we are. So why would, we, why would the rich man here be boasting in his arrogance? Well, it goes back to, uh, I can't remember if we talked about this when we looked at James 3, but it goes back to that word boasting. Because the word boasting uh, in the Greek is a neutral term. It's not, it's, it's not we, when we hear boasting in English terms, we're always thinking of the negative. We're always thinking of, uh, you know, you're boasting, you're bragging, you're full of yourself. But back then, it was a neutral term. And so I think a good word to replace it is advertise. You can have good advertisement. You can have bad advertisement. And so uh, you could look at it as James saying, like, you should look at yourself as insignificant. But as it is, you advertise your arrogance when you plan unknowingly you you keep thinking that you know what's best you keep having your plans work out according to the way you want but really if you have left god out of the entire process you are advertising your pride and arrogance and your foolishness unknowingly sometimes knowingly but you're so blind that you just keep running It's a state of pride or arrogance. Uh, This is what uh, the the word arrogance is. It's it's a state of pride, but with the implication of complete lack of basis in such attitude. It's a false arrogance. It's the idea that you don't even know you're in it. Pretentious pride may be rendered as constantly talking and thinking about one's greatness. And you've become so nearsighted and blind in your arrogance that you don't even know it. Actually, again, look, look back at James 1. James 1, again, just a great picture of this. Look, look at verse 9. We're going to go back a couple of verses from what we just read a second ago. Of course, this is in the context of trials and when things don't go according to your plan, which is very fitting for this. But verse 9 says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation. Because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. Which is so funny because like the world, is it not true that the world thinks opposite of this? The world thinks that if you're, if you're rich, if you're successful, if, if people think highly of you because of your high position, whether it's a formal position or just people's perception of you, I mean, that's ultimately what we should be glorying in and praising in. Uh, but if you're, if you're poor, if you're lowly, if people don't think highly of you, I mean... You should, I mean, that, those are the people who are living in a humble state. They're, they're humiliated. But James says it's the opposite. James says it's the other way around. It's the poor man that actually is to boast in his high position. And the rich man is the one who should be boasting in his humiliation, glorying in his humiliation. James actually says that this type of boasting, by the way, is this type of advertising your arrogance is, is evil. That may seem odd to us that, you know, maybe foolish or unwise or just weird, but evil, that's a little too far. I mean, they're just trying to plan for the future. Why, why would that be considered evil? Well, you know, again, at first, you may be unsure of the, the a- adjective here of saying that it's evil, but let me read to you Jeremiah 2, because Jeremiah 2 gives us some really interesting insight 
about the people of Israel and something they were doing that the Lord considered evil. Jeremiah 2.13, if you want the reference, uh, actually it's up there on the screen, but Jeremiah 2.13 says, for my, this is God speaking, for my people have done two evils. Listen to the two evils that his people did. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Number two, they have hewed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. He doesn't say that. Oh, that was foolish. That was so silly of you to abandon the fountain of living water and make for yourself your own cisterns that can't even hold water. Ah, you silly goose. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He says evil. You know why? Because you are living in arrogance and pride. Literally the perfect cistern of living water where you will never thirst again. I'm good. I'm not really into that flavor. Thanks. Let me go make my own over here. It's perfect. Uh, yeah, there's a few cracks, but it's fine. I mean, who's perfect? You have just replaced God And you have started bowing down to an idol that looks very, very familiar to you because it looks like yourself. That's what you've done. Idolatry is evil. And that's what you do when you plan presumptuously. That's why James here says it. That all such boasting is evil. Which, again, by the way... (laughs) When he says in chapter 1, the rich man should glory or boast when he's humiliated. You want to know why? Because if the Lord did not humble you in the midst of your pursuits and you actually got what you want, you would be headed straight towards a life that is either going to bring upon uh, discipline from a father because you are one of his children, or you simply show yourself not to be one of his children and you head towards a heart that has been hardened by your own pride and arrogance. If the Lord steps into your life and actually changes your plans the way that you didn't foresee, praise God. We're, I mean, how often is it we're complaining when things don't go our way, and yet if we had a heavenly perspective, we might be able to look clearly, and the Lord's like, you don't, do you not realize where you were headed? I am humbling you so that you can have the mind of Christ and see clearly the way you should be living. That's why the rich man should glory in his humiliation, which is the opposite of how we think. When we are humiliated, we want to hide. We want to complain. We've been telling all these people in our life these plans that we were going to do. And guess what? It fell through. And we're struggling on the way to church because we're like, man, when that person comes and asks me, it's going to be humiliating. Why are you not thinking clearly about the Lord may have just protected you from something that you didn't even fully understand? And also, this is why the poor person should glory in their high position. Because they have less distractions and a more clear understanding and mindset to be focused on the Lord. James says very clearly, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be in the humble category.
However, if you would rather not be humbled and keep according to your plan and keep being the God of your own world with no regard to God, you're prideful, you're arrogant, and you're evil because you're living in idolatry, which brings us to our last observation, and that is what I've called the actual problem. This is a, a verse, I'll read it real quick. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This verse has been uh, kind of stripped out of this uh, context many, many times. Uh, this is one of those over-the-counter Bible verses that we've used. Uh, parents a lot of times like now, you know, I'm going to leave and these chores need to be done. And the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. <laughs> And so we've, we've kind of used this verse, and, and by the way, I think the principles and the truth of this verse are, are probably used for the most part in the right context, but, but here in this whole dialogue and this whole section on planning and not planning presumptuously, this verse is so key to us understanding how we should plan our lives according to God's plans. And in fact, even the word therefore is significant, showing that there's definitely a tie to that, to what we see here in verse 17. So yeah, you could take it as stop boasting, stop planning without God. And look, if you, you know, if you know you're not supposed to do that and then you do it, that's sin. Yeah, I think that's true, but I think it's actually much bigger than that. There's been lots of conversations about this verse when it comes to sin of commission versus sin of omission. But again, I don't, I don't think those studies are needed here to understand what James is talking about in this context. James' main concern was demonstrated back in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. We ought to get up every day. And consider the Lord's plans, consider his purposes, consider his will. Not just avoiding sin all day, but thinking about how can we put in the positive commands that the Lord has asked us to do in the midst of our life. Even hearing some of your prayer requests, you can kind of hear that your heart's being sensitive to the fact that it's not just about avoiding sins. It's about how can I be used in where I'm at, which is kind of the purpose here. In the midst of your plans, what are you doing? How are you thinking? How are you interacting? Are, are the people in your life just distractions uh, for, for you in your pursuits of what you're trying to get done? Or do you understand that in God's sovereignty, the Lord has brought about these things in your life for you to live in obedience to him while you're in the middle of your plans? And really, I think the, the best way to understand what James is talking about here, because I really do think he's evoking a little bit of what he's uh, talked about with his half-brother Jesus. Um, and, and we've already alluded to it, but, but look at Luke 12. Look back at Luke 12. I really do think that the, the parables from Luke 12 were really in James' mind when he wrote this section, wrote this section of the letter to the Jewish Christians. Flip, flip uh, to Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 42 says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and prudent steward, 
whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour that he does not know and will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many beatings. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of beating will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they are entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. This is the actual problem. Who is your master? Do you live your life knowing that you are a slave to a master and you are doing all according to his, uh, everything according to his will? Yeah, we don't see him right now, but one day we will get to see him face to face. But while we're here, do we live always keeping in mind that his return is imminent? And, and when that is in our, the forefront, I mean, the, what we see in the parable of, of the slave that's sitting there and, and he's, he's waiting and, and he is always keeping in mind. It's not that he's just always sitting there staring at the road waiting for his master. He's got responsibilities. He needs to be tending to this and tending to that and keeping up with things at the house. But, but always in the back of his mind, he's thinking the master could be here any moment. That's, that's what James is talking about here. When you plan, absolutely, you have to, you have to plan and you have, to, you have to do things with your career and you have to do things with your home and your kids. And, and it's just busy. Life is busy. You have to do those things. That's what a good servant does. But are you always keeping in the back of your mind that the Lord could come back at any moment? And secondly, that he is your master. You're not the master. What I find is interesting is that the, the bad slave, the bad servant here is not like, ah, there is no master. There's no master whatsoever. You know what he does instead? Instead, he just says, well, it's going to be a long time. I've probably got some time. Look, I'm going to spend the next five years on me, and that should leave me plenty of time to get things in order when Jesus comes back. You sure about that? The person that James is describing in verse 13, he doesn't know who his true master is. That's the issue. As a servant of God, we have the freedom to make choices and decisions while we're waiting for our master's return. But every instance, every choice, every opportunity we have from the moment we wake up to the moment we lay our head on our pillow is an opportunity to act in accord with the master's will. If you are a believer, you have a master. And he left you here for a reason. Is your life a reflection of the reason he left you here? 
Your master has a will. Your master has a purpose for each one of us while you're here. Do we have freedoms to make choices? Absolutely. But each and every day is an opportunity to act in accordance with his will. This is, uh, can be overwhelming for many of us because for many of us, we're still in this confusion of, yeah, but I still don't know what God's will is. All right, there's an, if, if you haven't listened to it, there's an, an amazing sermon by John MacArthur just talking about the will of God. And he just walks through and he's like, look, before you start getting so concerned about what's God's, God's will for your life, why don't you go look in the scriptures to see what God's will for your life is? And he actually has six that he breaks down. And it's so clear because, because at the very end, it's, it's like one of those things where like, did he just say that? But at the very end, he's like, spoiler, sorry, I'm going to say it. Um, but he's like, if you're actually practicing and growing and progressing in these six things, go do whatever you want. And it's like, John MacArthur just said that. Wow. But the point is, is look, if you're actually obeying the scriptures and, and, and obeying and progressing and practicing, it's not to say that we're perfect, but you're more faithful last year than you were this year. If we're starting to see that in our own life, then go live your life because you're constantly thinking in the back of your head, what is the master's will? And he could be back at any moment, which is the right way we should be thinking of it. We shouldn't plan presumptuously. The actual problem is we just think that we're our own master instead of realizing that we are just servants and slaves of the real master. But the question is, who are you trusting when you plan? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. You want to know a great test for your heart to see if you actually are trusting yourself? And, and for some of us, it might be important to ask our significant other <laughs> the, their answer to this. What is your reaction when things do not happen according to your plans? It's a great test. I know it's in my heart in those moments. And what's there is a lot of arrogance and pride. And not only that, you want to add more on top of it, not only is there a frustration and bitterness and being upset when things don't go, to, go according to my plan, but then I'm overly consumed about other people's perception of me. Is that not true? It's, it's so backwards that we should be considering the Lord's plans, and yet when things don't go according to our plan, the only thing we're thinking about is ourselves. And instead, the question we should be asking is, what is the Lord trying to teach me at this exact moment? What is the Lord trying to teach me in this exact moment? And what scriptures can inform me so that I can better align myself with what his word is trying to teach me about my life? You know what that is? That's an unconditional trust. You trust him. He knows what's best. How about this? You guys focus on just getting through the day without sinning and let the Lord handle everything else. I promise you'll have your hands full. <laughs> Why do we get so consumed with wanting to have control of the future when we can't even handle today? Again, this is not a, 
message to say that we shouldn't plan. There, there's, a, there's a stewardship to planning and thinking carefully. But in the midst of that, do you realize that the Lord could come back at any moment and that the Lord has a purpose for your life while you're here? Bow with me in the word of prayer.